0: I want to turn our attention to the Word of God, and I will be giving you some scriptures as we go through this. Um, and, and, and so uh, what I want us to do, and I, I'm, I'm not hesitant, but I do want to be careful tonight because uh, we're going to be speaking of biblical linguistics. So let me, before we even get started, let me just give us a reminder or a primer, if you will, of, of what we're talking about. Um, and that is, first and foremost, the Bible was not written in English. Okay? The Bible was not written in English. English. English language as we know it, certainly as we know it, was not formed yet. The Bible would not be written in, uh, in the English language Uh, For many, many centuries. And so uh, the original passages would have been written in the Hebrew language. Does anybody here speak fluent Hebrew? Anybody? No? Okay. I I don't either. I wish I did. Um, And then the New Testament was written... Um, and, and, and it's primarily translated from the Greek. Does anybody speak Greek? Anybody here speak fluent Greek? Nobody. All right. So most of us, or well, all of us, could not go back and read the Bible uh, unless and accept the fact that it's translated correctly. Correct. So, so thank God it has, been, um, it has been translated. However, if we think about it, have you ever used a word... That meant something to you that didn't mean the same thing to somebody else. Anybody ever done that? I'll give you an example. There's a wonderful lady, a beautiful lady in our church here, a sweet lady, lady that years ago, um, I visited her family during an operation that she had, and I complimented her on her family. And um, after she got better and, and was recovering, I noticed she hadn't come to church, checked on her. And uh, this sweet lady had gotten very cool to me. She she didn't uh, th- th- that that open door of of communication was closed, and I could tell. So I finally, said uh, sister, what 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 is wrong between us? And she 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 got a little upset, and she said, Pastor, you have insulted my family. Now, I had just met her family through her health crises, and so. I, I wasn't sure what I'd done, but if I, I wanted to correct whatever I'd done wrong, and so I said, please, let me know how I've done that because I, I was uh, very impressed with your family. I, I thought they were incredible people. I enjoyed their friendliness, their banter, and I, 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 I enjoyed all of that. And, and so I thought I'd complimented them, but how did I insult them because I want to make this right? And uh, she said, well, I'm going to tell you how. She said, you said they were tight. And I'm telling you right now, they are not tight. They are some of the most generous giving people you have ever met. Now, how many of you know that someone being tight could mean tight wad? Meaning they don't like to give, they don't like to spend, etc. That's how she took what I said. And so I explained to her, when I said they were tight, I meant close-knit, that they were very, they looked out for each other, they watched out for each other, they were very concerned for you and for your children. And so when I said they were tight, I meant they were very close. So both of us were correct in the sense what it meant to her and what it meant to me, but yet what I said was not what she heard. Do you see what I'm trying to say? And it's because Uh, The the English language is so convoluted that you could, uh, we won't even get into all the the ways that it is. But the reality is words sometimes don't mean what we think they do or in certain applications. Context is everything. Well, that's the English language. Then when you factor in that we are not just talking about the English translation, we are also talking about translation from other ancient languages. Then it gets interesting. And so you'll find words in the Bible that have been translated, but you, if you remember the English translation is hundreds of years old. And so words that had meaning a hundred years ago don't mean what they do now. I, I say things and my boys get tickled and they're like, do you even know what you just said? And I'm like, I, I think so. I know what that word used to mean, but apparently it means something else different to your generation. Anybody even know what I'm talking about, you know? And so, uh, so, so words have changed in meaning. Because of all of that, because of all of that, um, it's, it's sometimes good to look into definitions and get clarification, So we're going to be dealing with that tonight. So I wanted to take, and I've taken about five minutes here to kind of give an overview. Okay, here's what else I know. I know it's Wednesday. I know it's in the middle of the week. And I know many of you have worked all day and you're tired. Some of you maybe didn't even get your meals. Some of you didn't get your nap and you really needed that nap today. And so if I go too deep into the mundane areas of definitions, it's going to be like, how is this even going to affect the fact that I'm trying to get to heaven and what does this matter? I don't want us to get lost in semantics or just word things, all right? But there's some, there's some things that I'm going to try to get across tonight that could be a paradigm shift for our thinking. So I'm going to ask you to stick with me a little bit. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to do my best, and I've literally prayed. I know what God has given me is incredibly sound. My prayer is not god help the word, but help me to communicate it in such a way that it will capture your attention and that it will speak to you. In fact, why don't we just pray for that right now? Could we do that? Lord, we ask you right now, your word is alive, and by your word, God is powerful. There is nothing else like it, and I believe you have given me a word for us tonight, and I pray that you would help this preacher to communicate to speak well enough lord to somehow convey what you have given me and put in my heart to this congregation lord i pray that you would help us receive and learn and love what it is that you've given us and we ask these things in the name of jesus amen amen now we're going to start by just simply saying no none of you raised your hands when we asked if there were any hebrew speakers here so um I'm assuming everyone's telling the truth and the fact that uh, none of us have have learned Hebrew. If we were to learn Hebrew, one of the first verbs that students are given to memorize is shove. Now, it doesn't mean to shove. It doesn't mean to push. It's not that word. But in the Hebrew, if we were to write it in English letters, it would be S-H-U-V. There are derivatives of that word that are used all throughout Scripture. In fact, it is a word that is so common that it appears over 1,000 times in the New Testament. It is a basic word the word shav in the Hebrew. Um, It has a particular definition it means to turn or to return or turn around, or change. So one of the first words you would learn as a Hebrew student is the word shove, which means to turn around or to change. And um, we find that as it appears in the Bible that there are times it is translated as turn or turn back or turn around. It is also translated into the English word that we understand as repent, okay? So anytime you see the word repent, you will see that the root word in the original language is almost always this word, which is one of the first words you would learn as a Hebrew, and that is shuv, S-H-U-V. So when we go from the Old Testament to the New, since it is the same author, and how many of you realize that the author is not those who penned each book, whether it's Moses with the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in the New Testament, or the other myriad of authors that there are, but or writers rather. But there is one author, and that is God, because they were the writers for that author, which is Him. They are the writers. He is the author. Does that make sense to everybody? So if we have one author, if we have many writers, you would expect to see there to be a consistency. However, we're dealing with this thing of language that we've already explained. So the, the, the words have some difference of meaning from the Old Testament to the New. Because the New Testament is coming primarily from the Greek and not the Hebrew. We understand that it uses a different word. In the Greek the word is rendered metanoen, metanoen. In the Hebrew it means to turn around, to return. In the New Testament metanoen means to change one's mindset. So what we have here is a difference in the philosophy of the two cultures. The Hebrew or Jewish culture is vastly different than the Roman culture, the Babylonian culture, the Egyptian culture, and certainly the Grecian culture. And these cultural differences come across in their language and in the way that the words are used. It's the connotation. It's it's, it's where the definitions come from. So when you would speak of turning around or repentance to the Old Testament or to the Hebrews, they would think of physically, literally changing one's direction, that you were heading this way and now you have turned and you have changed your physical course. But when you would speak this to the writers of the New Testament who are coming from a Greek. Um, understanding of language, they are not thinking of the physical, but they are thinking of the mental. And so they are expressing of changing one's mindset. So we see the fundamental differences between these cultures. One is a word of motion, the Hebrew Word is one of motion. It's a physical direction. The Greek is one of the mind, and it is about the experiences that are filtered via the perceptions of the mind. Okay. So here's, here's, here's where we're at. We have this thing that is crucial because it's one of the most used words in the Bible. In fact, it is one of the greatest concepts that you could get in your relationship with God. And and yet, there's a diversity, slightly there it is, but there is a diversity in its definition just simply based on two languages from which the Bible is translated. Now, let's add even further to our conundrum, if we shall. The English word that we use, repent comes from a Latin word. Actually, it comes from two, and I don't even know how to pronounce these, so I'm not even going to try. But the first one is penance, or atoning, or correcting one's wrong. The second is from the root that means punishment. And so our perspective of repentance or repenting is different than the Greek or the New Testament perspective, which is different from the Hebrew or the Old Testament. So do you see where we've got this swirling eddy of definitions, and we might ask ourselves, what is right? Well, let's just consider for a moment the perspective from our particular language, and that is of both Uh, atoning or correcting one's wrong and punishment. Is it any wonder that so much of the modern thinking and and even within the church world of sin and and forgiveness and repentance, etc., is all about dealing with the punishment? In fact, if we are not careful, there's a popular mindset among Christianity that we repent so that we get out of trouble. We repent to undo the wrong we've done, not because it was wrong, but because we don't want punished for it. It's to escape the punishment. And so if if this is our motivation, thank God that 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 there's at least something that is moving us in the right direction. But if the If the uh, motive is incorrect, I don't believe it will last. In fact, uh, the motive of all of that would be fear, and fear is a terrible motivator. It can be effective immediately and for some time, but fear is a terrible motivator over time because at some point you will overcome your fear of what you were afraid of. It will lose its grip on you, and now what? So we need something greater than fear to help us make these corrective measures. So, if punishment uh, for our wrongdoing is not enough, then then let's let's uh, keep going a little further into understanding this. In all of the scriptural references of which we spake, whether it's the Old Testament or the New, whether it's the mental or the motion, whether it's that which is entered or that which is literally physical, every element of the scriptural definitions does not have to do with avoiding consequences or getting out of trouble or reversing our judgment but it is about a change that we need to take literally a reversal or what we would say a 180 degree turnaround all right we could say it like this, we could call it a U-turn. Or say we were heading in one direction and now we're heading in another. Or you have one set of ideas and we're dropping those ideas and we're picking up a different mindset. And so we see this as repentance. Okay, Repentance is not avoiding consequences per se. Repentance is more literally about changing one's course changing one's mind. Let's look at it from the beginning. There's a, there's, a, there's a law of study in the Bible that speaks to the law of first mention. Anytime you have a question about something, you want to know what did God intend? Let's go to the earliest occurrence. And when we go to the earliest occurrence and we find, then when we trace that backwards, it gives us a way to look at every other occurrence afterwards. Does that make sense? Jesus did this when the when they came to trap him about the words of Moses, he said, let's, let's see what it was said in the beginning. Let's go to the beginning and see what it was there, and we'll come from there outward. And so it's, it's, it's a good tool for us to use yet today. So if we go to the first occurrence of this word, you'll find it's in Genesis 3.19. Now, there's an incredible Bible study in this that we could take not just tonight, but we could probably take several weeks and delve into the power of what is in this passage right here. Here, I don't have time and I'm resisting every urge to get into it. But it's literally that Adam is told after the fall, after they have sinned, after they have introduced death and destruction into the lifeline of all humankind. He has told them that, you know, the earth is going to work against you, thorns and thistles. They've they've been told about all of the other effects of what sin would do to them. But he is now told that, that you will die and that your body will return unto the dust from which you are. Now, this is a An amazing example of what this word literally means. You were taken from the dust. You were lifted up out of the dust. Out of the dust was this bodily form created and breathed into the breath of life. It became a living soul. And the Lord is showing him, you will return to your origin. You will return to your maker. You will return to that from which you came. That is the absolute definition of this word that becomes repentance all throughout the Bible. It is returning to the origin. It's returning to the former state. And he says, your body will do that. And so we find the writer of Ecclesiastes expands on this and he goes into greater detail for he says, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was and the spirit shall return unto the God who gave it. So the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, not only will the dust return, anybody want to guess what that word return there is translated? Yes, S-H-U-V, shove. So the the, the body will return to the dust, but then the soul, that spirit, that breath that God breathed into man, when we die, that spirit returns, S-H-U-V, back. To the one who gave it. So, encapsulated in these passages is this concept that we need to understand that from the beginning of time, from the origin of Scripture, we have this thing that returning to its origin returning to its maker is the primary concept so our english definitions are about avoiding consequences and and righting wrongs and 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 even the greeks changing the mind but but to the beginning of time it has always been about Face and, and turning around and, and changing one's behavior. And so uh, we, 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 want to, we want to go on. Um, over 21 times, over 21 times, God appeals through the prophets of the Old Testament for people to repent. And yes, this word continues to show up. Let's look at 2 Kings 17 and 3. I want you to understand, none of this is something that I'm simply pulling out of the figment of my intellect or imagination, but we are using the Word of God here exclusively. 2 Kings 17 and 13, rather. By all prophets. By all prophets. And by all seers. Seers are those who could... Uh, see what was coming ahead. These are those who could speak prophetically. So by the prophets of old and those who God would inspire to speak, did, did, were they uh, told saying, Turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments. Now, if you're a note taker, if you're a highlighter, if you're an underlighter, then there's a couple of words there that I'd like you to look at and, and uh, mark down. Turn ye and keep. Turn ye and keep, because we understand this process of repentance. Uh, it, it it is more than just uh, a simple turn, but it's a U-turn. It's a complete turn. It's a one eighty. And so we'll 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 address it here in the in the subsequent scriptures. But let me let me let me address it like this. How many of you have driven up and down State Road Night? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. Is it, how many of you love all of the new medians and the fact that you can't just turn in and get your fresh hot fries, but you have to go to the end of the road and you have to do it? I'm seeing thumbs down. I'm seeing, yep, I know you're not happy. I, I get it. I'm with you. I'm 100%. But there's things called, this thing called a U-turn. Now, if you do a U-turn, at an intersection, you can also turn right or left. Is a right turn the same as a U-turn? Absolutely not. Is a left turn the same as a U-turn? It's not. Why? Because those are a change of direction, but they do not take us back to the original place. And so it's not enough to simply turn away from where we're going, but we gotta turn back to where we come from. Okay? So it's not enough to turn away because it's, it's easy for us to find a substitute for what we need to turn away from. People can even make church and religion a substitute for God. And we can become addicted to churchy things without really turning back to God. And I... <laughs> Okay, so, so I want to use a couple of scriptures here to emphasize the point that I'm making there. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 6 through 7. It says, Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord. And so God is telling us, this is not, remember, he's the author, these are the writers. These men that are speaking, they're not speaking from themselves or from their own authority. They're speaking for God by his authority. And so the Lord says, tell them to repent. Guess what that word is? S-H-U-V, shove. Repent and turn, S-H-U-V, from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel or the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separateth himself from me, which separateth himself from me which separateth himself from me. Notice that. And setteth up his idols in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of iniquity before his face and cometh to a prophet to inquire of me, will answer by myself. Notice here in this passage, in this earlier portion, that the Lord instructs them to repent and turn away from their idols. So a U-turn has two turns in it. It has the turning away and it has the turning back toward. You make two turns in a U-turn. That's why it's not enough just to turn away because he goes on in Hosea 14 and 1, he says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. So it's not enough to just turn away. We have to turn away from our idols. We have to turn away from the things that have corrupted us. But it's not enough simply to turn away without a proper destination. We've got to turn away from wrong, but we've got to turn back to what is right. Okay? So he says, return Guess what that word is? Yes, S-H-U-V. Return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Now he says, take your words. Now, notice, I want to say this very carefully, and we'll address this a little bit further on, that repentance is not just saying all the right words and then there, I've magically repented and everything's taken care of. It is about this returning. However, returning and making things right sometimes involves words, okay? So he tells them, say this when you go. When you return to your Lord, say these words. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously so we will not render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us and we shall not ride on horses. Now there will we say any more to the works of our hands, ye are our gods. In other words, He is telling them, tell God that the works of your hands, which are the idols that they made, the shaped idols that they would form out of wood and stone and out of metal, I want you to hear yourself say that these idols that we have made cannot help us. Asher is a God. They were worshiping through the practice with this, this writing, and he is saying, what I need you to do, you need to hear yourself say that these things that we turn to instead of God, hear yourself confess that they did not help, they cannot help, and that you will not turn to them anymore. So when you come back to God, just simply confess, I tried this way, it didn't work, I'm not going to try it anymore. That's what this means. Okay, I did this, it didn't help, I ain't going to do it anymore. And it's as much for us to hear ourselves, because there will come a point in time, and I promise you, it doesn't matter how meaningfully you confess and you repent, there will come a time when something will creep back in your head and say, you know that's really not wrong, don't you? You were just caught up in the emotion of the moment. And and, and now here you are. You've made a vow that you wouldn't do this or you wouldn't do that. And God really doesn't care about all that. So now you, you know, but if you've heard yourself say, God, I tried that. It did not help. And you confessed it before the Lord. You have put something in your spirit because that inner part of you is listening to what you say. You have went on record that we tried it my way, and it didn't work. We tried it the way that appealed to the flesh, and it didn't work. And so we have confessed these words, and, and not, neither will we do. And here's what the Lord says, I will heal, I will heal their backsliding and will love them freely. So before they have ever received this, before they have ever acted upon it, before they have ever processed it or put it into action, the Lord is already saying, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal them and I'm going to forgive them. It is the will and the desire of God to restore us. So, we find If I can clarify all of that by saying this, we find there's an interesting element that further explains repentance. Repentance has two parts. It's turning away from evil, and it's turning back to God. If you need me to just make all of that concise and put it in very simplistic terms, it is turning away from evil, and it is turning back to God. It is not complete if all we do is turn away from evil. We've got to turn back to God. And let me tell you this. We cannot turn to God without turning away from evil. Okay? It requires both. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 7 and 10. Because if we're not careful, we have thought sometimes in in the world of religion of what repentance means. Let me tell you why this matters. Acts, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a chapter in Acts, what is it, um, where God says, he says it like this, he says that there was a time when God winked at sin, at the ignorance of sin, but no longer, but now he commandeth everyone, everywhere to repent. All of us are commanded to repent. Amen. When Peter was asked, "What shall we do about our sin?", he tells them, "Interesting. The first thing that comes is repent, be baptized for of your sins, in the name for the remission of your sins in the name of Jesus, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost." Of course, there's other elements to his message, but but repentance is essential. I believe repentance is essential to our salvation. And so, so if it is essential, then don't we want to get it right? If it's, if it's critical, if we are commanded, we must repent. All men everywhere must repent. If it's, if it's part of our salvation, then we must. We, I want to get it right. And so if we're going to get it right here, then, then let's understand. Because we've had this concept that to repent means, well, you know, if we're really sorry for what we are done, we're going to have an emotional reaction to our wrongdoing, or at least the awareness thereof, and we will maybe come to an altar, and you've seen people that cry, and so, uh, you know, you might feel like, well, I, I've done that, or you might feel like, for some reason, the tears didn't come. Did that mean I didn't repent? And, and we've equated this repentance experience to this emotional altar uh, occurrence, and, and maybe we, we haven't got that right. Because 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow... That's the awareness of our wrongdoing. And it's produced a grief that says, I can't believe I did that. I cannot believe I lived so injurious to the to the Lord who, who hung upon a cross for my sins. And it was my sins that put him there. It was my sins that, that he endured and that he suffered. And because of my wrongdoing, did he bleed and did he die? And, and I cannot believe the, the shame and the pain that My sins put upon him, and because of that, my spirit is broken, my heart is broken, and I've cried. But all of the crying that we could possibly do will not bring us to repentance within itself. This passage makes it clear. Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, or it takes us to a place of repentance, or it produces repentance. And so uh, sorrow is not the same as repentance, but it is. it can be part of the process that brings us to a place of repentance. So listen to this. If we understand repentance means turning, turning around or returning unto that original source, then what we read in this is godly sorrow leads us to turn around and go back where we belong but godly sorrow is not the process of turning but it leads us to that place is that all right and so we're not taken away from the tears we are not taken away from those emotional moments in any capacity but understand that a lot of us cry when we get caught we get caught the candy hand in the cookie jar we, we, we are emotional. We don't like the fact we got caught. We, 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 we have a reaction to the consequences that we know that are coming. But all of those emotions are not repentance. Repentance is changing our behavior, changing our mind, and going back to the source or the beginning or what God intended. Let me, let me, let me stay on this for a minute because here's what we need to understand. If repentance is simply saying, I'm sorry, then we will most likely get caught in a trap of repetitive behavior. Oops, and then I'm sorry. Oops, I'm sorry. And it's, it becomes easy and almost uh, second nature. Just oops, I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have looked at that. Shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have thought that. Shouldn't have went there. Shouldn't have, oops, sorry, oops, sorry. And we get caught in this pattern of behavior. And we can say, but I've repented. But we never turned. And we never changed. And that we never returned. So I'm going to say, it doesn't matter how many times we've apologized. It doesn't matter how many times we've said, I'm sorry. What matters is, have we changed our thoughts? Have we changed our behavior? Amen. So... The reason why I'm going into this depth and detail is not just so that we can go to another level of theological understanding, but I believe it produces clarity. If we can kind of let all the dust settle when it does, we're going to see some things more clearly. I I really believe that. Because not only are we defining what repentance is, but because we have a greater understanding of what repentance is, I believe we can get a greater understanding of what sin is. Yes. If we we were to ask, the average person on the street about sin, we would probably automatically go to a list of things called the Ten Commandments, the do's and don'ts, the rules, as as some people would say. And so we, you know, we get into this uh, mindset of don't do this, do this, don't do that. And so, uh, uh, in fact, in fact, one of the most dangerous places that a Christian can get to is where they look to their pastor, the leaders of the church, or the church itself, and they say, just give me a list of stuff that I shouldn't do so that I can be accepted, so that I can get to heaven, and I'll just check them off and make sure I don't do them. And I'll be honest, it is one of the most diabolical things you can ever do is to get a checklist mentality, because as long as you're checking off all the lists, you'll feel secure in your salvation, even if you have become far removed from your salvation. Because salvation is not a checklist. The other thing is it gives you a weapon to look at others and see if they're checking off the things that you are. And then we become contrast and comparison, and we begin to look around, and, well, I did that, but they didn't. And we begin to measure others, and that's never what it was meant to be. Okay? So, so how do we know, then, do we just, or do we go to the other side of the extreme and say, well, let's just be like those who were in the New Testament said, well, since there's grace abounding, then, you know, whatever we do, we just, you know, well, grace covers it, and so it's all good, Right? And, and, and that's not good either. So, so what is this? We, we, I believe it's so profoundly clear in this, in this definition that I'm trying to get across tonight. And there's one reason why I've just kind of pounded down this one nail. And we've hit it. You say, the nail's solidly in the surface of the wood. Would you stop pounding it? No, I won't because of this. When we understand what repentance is, then it defines what sin is. If repentance is a returning to God, then sin is anything that turns us away from God. So I thought she was going to tell us something really profound and powerful and wow. No, it's really just that. It's anything. Anything. Anything that we have to turn away from to get back to God was a sin in the first place. So, well, I've never heard that preached against. I've never heard that taught against. That's, I've not, I don't even know if that's in the, the list that God gave Moses. That's certainly not on my checklist. Welcome to Christian maturity of living beyond just meeting someone's expectations and getting to the crux of the matter that anything that pulls me away from God, of which I would have to repent or return from to get back to God, it was a sin in the first place. Even if it's not in black and white anywhere in the Bible. Show me in the Bible where that is. Let me just ask you, is that leading you to God or away from God? (laughs) Come on, y'all. Give me scripture and verse. Prove it to me. Just ask you Are you closer to God since you partook in that, or further? Are you drawing nearer to God, or is that something that is distracting you and leading you away? Because if we ever have to come to a point that because of that thing, I've got to find my way back to God, then it was a sin. How simple yet so incredibly profound. So let me prove it to you by Scripture because I told you I would not lean to my own understanding or definitions. James 1 and 14 and 5, 15 rather. But every man is tempted when he is what? Drawn away. Wow. Temptation is that drawing away of our Own lust. Notice the word own. Your lust may be different from my lust. My lust may be different from your lust. That is why I refuse to hand you a checklist by which we can measure ourselves and then we begin to compare others. Because there are going to be some things that will draw you away, but not me. And there will be things that will draw me away from God that may never pull you away from God. And the ones that draw me away are sin, but may not be a sin for you. Now, there are things that are clearly stated in the Bible, refrain from, don't touch, don't even go close to. I'm not in any capacity questioning the things that are clearly marked. But we have a lot of gray areas that people want to try to wiggle through or define. And it simply comes down to this. Does it draw you away? Through your own lust. Does it entice you? Do you get a little tingle? Does it make you feel good? Does it appeal to your lust or to your flesh? That may be your first warning sign. That even if you've never heard a Bible study or you've ever heard teaching about it, because it is appealing so much to your lust, to your flesh, to your carnality, it may be a sin for you. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin is a product of being drawn away by our lust and enticement. Anything that draws us away from God is a sin. Because if we have to repent of it to get back to God, it was a sin in the first place. Isaiah 59 and 2 clarifies it says, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Iniquity, sin is that which creates a gulf between us and separates us. So therefore, sin is not our favorite list of evil dislikes. I can't emphasize this enough, but it is Anything that we would have to turn away from to draw close to God. Let me say this. It is possible for a good thing to become an evil thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. I wish to God you'd hear that enough that it will imprint in your heart. Even a good thing can become an evil thing when it becomes a God thing. Israel was dying, and God sent serpents, but God gave them, uh, because of serpents, and God gave them a serpent to hold up on a pole that anybody should see it would be saved, and their salvation became an idol, and they began to worship it over the God that sent it to them until God had to remove their salvation or the thing that saved them because it became a sin the thing God used to save them had to be destroyed because a good thing had become an ultimate thing. I'll be honest. We mock other cultures and societies that put up little statues and, and what have you. And I've seen us walk out of restants and rub big bellies and, and on, on statues. And I've seen us do all this stuff. And can we believe that anybody would ever bow to that and worship? But in our hilarity and, and 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 behavior, we turn around and we worship things that are as foolish as any other idol in this world. Because I've seen people have to repent over these. I've had to repent. So well, you shouldn't be looking at this or that. Sometimes it's not about what, but how much, how often and how long. And even good things, because we've talked to many of you tonight about the resources that are available and what can happen uh, uh, with our devices. But even good things can become evil things when they become ultimate things. Anything that comes between you and God is an ultimate thing, and therefore even good things have become evil. For the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, then all these things. There's a lot of things that can be added to your life once God is first. But anything that takes the place of God is sin. Anything that takes the place of God is sin. That's why I emphasize this so clearly. Anything that we would have to turn from to draw closer to God is sin. But, by that same token, sin simplified makes true repentance even less challenging. As a child, I grew up hearing messages about uh, the, the, you know, those who sought repentance and could not find it, and the the fear that terrorized me was what if I cannot repent? And I remember as a child going to my father. But I'm afraid that I can't get back to God. I'm not sure. Maybe I'd taken some bubble gum out of a drawer that I wasn't supposed to take. And then somewhere along the line, I felt like I was wrong and I needed to repent. But what if I can't repent because we had this thing that, you know, let's 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 be fearful in in this. And and the reality is that forgiveness of sin and even repentance is not a fearful thing it can be a simple thing when we understand sin if sin is anything that draws us away to god from god repentance is simply the moment the moment that we turn back to him The Bible says if a righteous man were to make it, and I'm paraphrasing very liberally here. give Give me the latitude to do so. But if the righteous man should make it to heaven, but at the last moment he should turn away, he will be damned. But if the evil man should make his way to hell, but at the last moment he should turn, he shall be saved. What does that mean? It means direction is vastly more important than position. Well, I've been in church all my life. I've been here for so many years that, you know, and let me tell you something. Pew occupancy doesn't have tenure. We are not saved by how long we've been in church. Your position doesn't save you. Your longevity doesn't save you doesn't matter what year it was, how many decades ago you spoke in tongues. What I want to know is which direction are you heading? Are you heading toward him or away from him? Because direction matters vastly more than position. The Bible says the man that's about to cross the threshold of hell, if he turns, he will be saved. That's the power of repentance. It's why this matters so much. It's why, I understand, on a Wednesday night when we got cobwebs in our brain, thank you for sticking with me and holding on because I'm almost done. Thank you for allowing me to speak this into our spirit because this church has got to get this, embrace this, and let this word get in our heart because it changes so much. Stand with me all over this house. If repentance is not a simple, is not a difficult thing to figure out. Am I forgiven? If it's simply when I return. I'm going to close with this little story of the prodigal. And I, I, I know it's a powerful, I'm going to simplify it as much as I can. The Bible says the prodigal came to himself. There was the awakening and the awareness that I've done wrong. And we, we want to shun this because we don't like to have that, uh-oh, I'm wrong. We talked about it last year uh, at the beginning of the year with David. When he found, when the prophet pointed the finger and said, Thou art the man, one of the most incredible feelings had to come over him because you're guilty. What do we do with that moment? Because it's everything we hate, it's easy to say, I don't want that. but Can I tell you that is the greatest Gift of grace you could ever have. We we post graced all over. We put it on social media and stickers and we put it on our car windows and we talk about. Let me tell you, the greatest grace you ever get in your life is not God letting you slide on something, but the greatest grace you have is when he says, Gotta fix us. Wow. And in that moment, the Bible says he came to himself, he was aware of his wrong. And what was his reaction? He said, I will arise and go back. That's repentance. I want you to understand, he's living in the slop with the hogs. He has become a slave to to a master. He has sold himself into slavery. He has been stripped of the robes that recognize who he is. is, His feet have been made bare because slaves couldn't wear shoes. And so everything about his appearance showed that he had been living with the hogs and he was uh, not his own man. And when he turned in that state, it was repentance. Now, we go forward. We find that the father received him and the father cleaned him up and the father put a robe upon him that reinstated and the father put shoes upon him that secured his citizenry. And the father did all of these things and and killed the fat of the cat and they celebrated. But let me tell you something. Repentance didn't happen when he got the new ring and we got the new clothes and he got the new shoes. Repentance happened when he was still covered in muck with the identity of a of a servant. Oh God. When somebody shows up in service, they didn't come here for for some free gift. The only reason that somebody would sit on this pew and walk into this house as a, as a stranger not knowing the people around them is because at some point in their life there is a turning on the inside that says, what I'm doing isn't working. I propose to you that we need to get it through our mind that almost every person that would walk through the doors of this church to come and see is in a place of repentance or in a state of repenting. What does that matter? There ought to be a celebration when they come through the doors because the Bible says when the father received his son, they threw a party and they celebrated. Why? Because he is reinstated? No, because he turned around. And he goes onward to say in that same chapter, Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner that re one that's baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, has went through Bible studies and got all the answers to every theological question that could ever arise and is now prepared to mentor others and disciple others and those who have got degrees in theology and now they can teach and preach and do anything else that God would have them do. And it doesn't say that. Over one that repents. Heaven throws a party and celebrates. God forbid I ever asked somebody to prove their sincerity to me. You don't owe me. And I'll I'll be the first to tell you, I've not always got this right. But when somebody is willing to walk through a door into a crowd they don't know, I believe they are in a state of repentance. I've not always repented right, I've not always repented thoroughly. And so it will be that some will come so far and then not fulfill and finish the course. But it's not for you and me to watch others walk through the door and say, well, let's see if they're really serious or sincere. But it's for us to realize the only reason they'd even be here is because just like us, there's been something working and dealing and turning and changing and so therefore will I rejoice because if heaven's happy, why can't I? Because the last thing I want to be is the older brother. Says, I can't party with y'all. So I'm asking us, does this reframe repentance? I know I've taught many of these elements and aspects, and it's certainly not original to me. And so I've not in any way been creative and invented anything here tonight. But I hope that maybe just a different way of addressing it, maybe we can see some things a little more clearly. And I hope there's a thread that runs through what we've said that will give us a clearer picture of what it is. Because everything that we want to see, a life that is repented, one that is baptized in the saving name of Jesus, one that is then filled with the Holy Ghost. Why should I be filled with the Holy Ghost? Because that repentance stuff, you can't keep the change without the power to do it. And the Bible says you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You can repent, but you can't stay repented without the power of the Holy Ghost we could go on into the whole element of the new birth experience. It's all important. It doesn't stop at repentance, but it certainly does require it. And I believe God is going to fill this church with people that are in the process of repenting. And I wish this church would get with this pastor an appreciation for what that means in the view of heaven. And I pray that our services would turn into a celebration of rejoicing and excitement over just one that repents.